verse 14, and we'll go all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. But first, let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you very much for your word, that you want to be known, and you let us know you. We pray that you might direct our hearts towards you now in your word. Amen. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, it's on page 957 in your pew Bible. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. Excuse me, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's consciousness? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. What do you want out of life? I don't know. To be happy? To be happy. I want the American dream. I want to be happy. The professor said to me, you can never measure happiness. And why they thought you could measure depression, which they were all doing, but you couldn't measure happiness, I'm not sure.
This is a paradise to me. That's why I love it so much. And then you don't know what you're going to see. When I was run over by a truck, my whole life changed. There is a great deal you can do on a regular basis to become happier. My wife and I watched this documentary uh, some uh, on happiness some uh, weeks ago, and if you're wanting to find out uh, where uh, to get happiness, uh, don't watch uh, that, uh, that documentary. What it does, though, is show this universal uh, human longing that we have uh, for happiness. Uh, we want to be happy. Amen. We, do we want to be happy? My grandmother, uh, the last years of her life, um, one of my memories of her is of her just expressing the desire for me to be happy. Are you happy? We have these longings for happiness. And we know, those of you that are part of this church, that we find happiness not by aiming for happiness, but we attain happiness by seeking and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, the Corinthian church, like us, was, was seeking after uh, happiness, uh, was on a quest for it in Christ to seek happiness. And we have, as we've traveled through this book of 1 Corinthians, we have seen a, a variety of failures or stumblings of the Corinthian church I'm going to bring those lights up, guys, so can, uh, we're going to get in our Bibles in, in a few moments here. It'll take me a while to get there, but uh, I'd like to be able to see you, too. I'm just like looking at this dark, uh, dark room. So where was I? Um, this Corinthian church is on the road, uh, as, as we are, as seekers of happiness, of trying to live out the Christian life, and they have stumbled along the way in, in a variety of ways. They have fallen short. They have, they have sinned. And the first uh, problem that we saw, first impediment to happiness or joy in Christ, living out the, the Christian life, is division within the Corinthian church. We saw this right out of the, the shoot of 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 1. And the problem there was this factionalism. I'm summarizing it, my pastor is better than your pastor. And the Corinthian church had a variety of people that were coming through and preaching, and and leading, and shepherding Paul, and Apollos, and others. And so within the church, uh, there there became these factions of, I like this guy, I like that guy. And and we know that happiness, and the Christian life is is not lived out. Happiness is not found by finding your favorite leader, and rallying around him, and and putting others uh, aside. So we had... Uh, so we had division in the church. And then the second problem, I'm calling accommodation in the church. And the church was accommodating sin under the, uh, a false idea or a false way of living out this theology of the freedom that we have in Christ. This isn't the favorite subject to talk about, but it's there in chapter 5 where we have a man 
who is now living with, living as though he's married to his stepmother. Father, most likely, had died. People married much younger uh, back then, and there's less age difference between the generations. And so he is part of the family uh, at Corinth, the church family there, living with his stepmother. And the church is okay with this. And so Paul speaks very loudly and very clearly that this cannot be. This is a violation of all kinds of things, including laws of incest. So, so the, the way to happiness is not getting uh, whatever we want when it comes to uh, marriage or uh, whatever was going on here. I'm ready to just move by this one. Are you with me? Are you with me? All right. Number three. Problem number three, lawsuits among the believers. What the real issue is here, what the real idol is here, is money. It's money. And so I've summarized this problem. I'm going to sue the guy in the, in the next pew because he's done me wrong in business. And we're going to go before a secular judge and we're going to have it out and I'm going to get the money that I deserve because he did me wrong. And Paul comes into that and he says, you guys have already been completely defeated by suing the guy in the pew next to you because you are demonstrating to the world that what's most important to you is money and not the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says to the guy that's wrong, you should just be wronged for the sake of the gospel. And so the way to happiness is not money. The way to live out the Christian life is not to pursue money. And then we come to a fourth problem. And this one Paul has spent a lot of, of, of ink on. Uh, the problem of, uh, I'm calling it a tri-tip sacrificed to Zeus. Or meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, specific idols aren't mentioned in the text, but the, the Greek uh, culture in Corinth there worshipped all sorts of gods. False gods. And the Corinthians were a part of this uh, celebrations and festivities of worshiping these other idols and partaking of the meat that was offered and the sacrifices of these other idols. And it becomes this big issue. And Paul steps in and says, I don't want you, and we're going to see this in today's text as well. He returns to this theme. I don't want you eating in these celebrations, in these festivals, in these feasts, meat that's sacrificed to idols. And he says, more than that, we're going to look at it. But these are all, I'm just doing a summary here to show us for problems in the church, what we have covered, and none of these, uh, none of these pathways are pathways uh, to attain happiness or to live out the Christian life. I'm equating these two things in a sense. This is where I'm coming from today, a big perspective of the Bible and of the gospel Because as believers in the Lord Jesus, as we live out the Christian life, one of the fruits that we should have is joy, biblical joy or happiness. And the Corinthians have stumbled in pursuing this. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit now and move forward quite a few centuries. This is a transition here from the first century to the uh, to the what is it? The 17th or the 18th century. And those folks who were setting up our government. And happiness was one of the core things that they believed that government conferred on the people. Happiness. Is that true? Uh, James Otis Jr. The duty of government is above all things 
to provide for the security, the quiet, and happy enjoyment of life, liberty, and property. Josiah Quincy, Jr., the proper object of civil government is the greatest happiness of the greatest number. James Wilson, the happiness of the society is the first law of every government. John Adams, the happiness of society is the end or the goal or the aim of government. Now, now it's really interesting. I've, 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 I have a, a reason for showing these, these guys is I think the guy that actually wrote on the behalf of, uh, of our nation uh, in this very famous preamble to the Declaration uh, kind of jumped ship from them a little bit. Some of, you, some of you know where I'm going, his phrase here. Let's just read this, perhaps the most famous, I'm going to read it, you don't need to read it with me, but read this perhaps most famous English sentence outside the Bible, perhaps, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the difference, that word pursuit. You see, I think Thomas Jefferson, who wrote this, knows the government doesn't give happiness. It doesn't. They, they can set up a society, and, and they did, that's just and so on. Not perfectly just. They did their best, I think. But I think he knew. And I think he did not yet, and I don't know that he ever did know the Lord Jesus Christ or that he ever found happiness. But he knew that government didn't bring it. So we know we're happiness. That if we aim for happiness, we're not going to get it. We have to aim for the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is we look at our passage today. I told you it was going to take me a few minutes to get here. We're looking at really some essentials from 1 Corinthians 10 about how to live the Christian life. And another way to say this is to have joy or to have happiness. How to have how to attain happiness. The Corinthians are stumbling. And throughout this book, Paul is getting them on track and giving them guidance. So let's pick it up. We're going to see four, four basic things uh, in this sermon. Two really clear things in this section of the end of 1 Corinthians 10. The first comes through from verses 14 through 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. It would be really helpful to, so that you could track with me if you... Grab one of those Bibles and turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Let's pause here for a second. So Paul is in the context here, we're going to see it in the next few verses, of dealing with this issue of meat sacrificed to idols. What do we do with this, Paul? They, they were eating, they were being part of these festivals. We're free in Christ, isn't it okay that we can do this? These idols aren't real. There is no such thing as Zeus. So we can go and we can eat tri-tip, right? And so he's, he's beginning by talking about the Lord's Supper in communion, 
saying that those of us who partake of the bread and partake of the cup when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that we are participating in, this, in, in Christ himself and, the, and, and we are participating in the body and the blood of Christ. So this is what he's saying in, the, in this first section. Then let's look on in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. So now he's going back to ancient Israel. So he's using a comparison of the Lord's Supper and our age, the church age. Now he's gone back to ancient Israel. and He's saying they, when they offered these sacrifices, they participate in this. Verse 19. Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, no. Zeus is nothing. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You you can't have both. Who is your Lord? Don't mess around with that. Not because Zeus is real, but because there's a demonic realm uh, that's at work. And you're participating in that. So, uh, you can't, uh, where am I, 21, you cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. 22, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So, how am I tying this into happiness in the Christian life? Okay, here, here, here's, here's where I'm going with this. If we draw a big circle around this, uh, you and I, most of us, might be a couple of you. Someone talked to me about this uh, a few weeks ago. There may be a couple of you that actually deal with this specific thing. But most of us, we're not dealing on a daily or weekly basis with meat-sacrificed idols. Right? This is not what we're dealing with. So we have to draw a bigger circle around passages like this when we ask, how does this apply to my life? And so as we draw a bigger circle around these paragraphs, that, that big circle we could call idolatry. Okay? Idolatry. And so I want to suggest that to live the Christian life, to attain happiness, that's not our aim. We're going to get to our aim here at the very end of this passage. But happiness is a fruit or a byproduct of the Christian life. And joy, we have to understand idols. We have to figure out idolatry. And when I say this, I say it, I mean two things. I mean, one, we need to figure out biblically what idolatry is. And then we need to figure out what our own individual idols are or idolatrous tendencies, what they are. Let me give you an example of this last part. I'm kind of going out of order here. But when I say that you and I need to figure out what our idolatrous tendencies are. So uh, this shouldn't surprise you, but on occasion, uh, your pastor yells at his children. This isn't a good thing. It's true. I yell at them, I lose control. And uh, they've sinned, usually. Shouldn't surprise you, your pastor's kids are sinners. The pastor's a sinner, his kids are sinners, you're sinners, they sin. I should not yell in anger at them when they sin. So when I say we need to figure out idolatry on the personal level, on the second level that I'm kind of uh, shortcutting and going to talk to before I talk about the first level, I need to do the work to understand what idolatry is at work there. The idolatry is an idolatry of self that I want things my way. I don't want my kids interrupting this time of mine right now with their sinning, and so I'm going to yell at them. So it's the idol of self or my own time or my own schedule 
that, that, that is coming out there. So, to attain happiness, a fruit of the Spirit, a byproduct of the Christian life, we've got to figure out idolatry. And there are two types of idolatry. I'm backing up now to biblically understanding idolatry. So the first kind of idolatry I'm calling uh, idols of evil. Okay? And these are idols that are always wrong. They're sinful. We, we, we should never involve ourselves with blank. That would be an idol of evil. And an example of that would be going to the celebration of Zeus or whomever and partaking of this meat sacrificed to idols and partying and, and, and being a part of that celebration. You should never do that. This is what Paul's saying here. And I could go on, I, I don't think you need me to go on with uh, examples for us of, of basically anything that's evil. That can become an idol that we always must repent of. But where we need more help I think, is what I'm calling the idols of excess, okay? In other words, things that are good in and of themselves, but when we are excessively attached to them in the place of Jesus, they become idolatrous, good things, not, not wicked things or evil things. And one of these would be ourselves. You and I are, are good things, but I can't be excessively attached to myself or my image or, or who I am starting to smile right now because my, my wife had to, this morning, you know, I'm about to leave the door. Can I talk about this? <clears throat> I'm about to, I, I won't go into the details. <clears throat> I'm about to walk out the door. I'm just going to say it, all right? I'm just going to say it. So my wife told me that I needed to use my razor a little bit more in a certain location. My nose. Before I walked out the door, all right, I'm not that concerned. I, I shouldn't be someone that's that concerned about what I, with what I look like. I shouldn't be obsessively consumed with what I look like. And I may be on the other end of that spectrum, and my wife has to help you out. So I actually am, like, wearing the right clothes, and I've, I've, uh, I've, uh, did, did, you, did you guys get what I'm talking about here? Yeah, okay. You don't need any more details. Okay. All right. So where was I here? Okay. Um, idols of excess. The second kind of idolatry are good things. We we should care for ourselves. We should love ourselves. But when we excessively love ourselves, then we become idolatrous. So let me just give you a couple examples of of this. Um, This is from John Hanna. He writes, many say that they have a love for God, but their love is only pleasure in God as the giver of good gifts and pleasant circumstances. This type of love is really a love of self. Because God is not the supreme object of the appreciation. It is merely a love for God as a provider, a Santa Claus. It is not a biblical love. So it's a little different than what I was just talking about, but it's related. This, this, this love of self, some of us might have a false view of God. We view God as a Santa Claus who gives us what we want. And so this, this our real idol, our functional God here is ourselves if we're, if we're going uh, th- this way. So a couple other Idols of excess, or what some might call inordinate idols. We seem to value as a culture athleticism, the virtue of strength. It's good if God gives you with athletic abilities, it's good to have strength if God gives you that. It's something else for us to be so excessively attached to a sport or to performance that it dominates our, our, our week and our, our culture. In our, in our minds and in our hearts. 
So this is difficult. Some of you need to just let this go by. Those of you that watch football and it's not a big deal. But I'm serious now. But for some of you, my my wife and I went and saw uh, the movie, almost like a documentary, uh, Concussion. And there's a line in that movie where a guy says, the church used to own one day of the week. But now the NFL owns one day of the week. And in large part, in California, I mean, if we got some social scientists, who owns the day of the week? I I don't think we'd win. I don't think we'd win. Uh, The the NFL would win. So it's not wrong to watch football. It's not wrong to be athletic. It's not wrong to watch basketball or whatever, mountain biking. (laughs) But when we are excessively attached to that good thing, it becomes idolatrous physical beauty it's the art of temporal attractiveness the lord has made each of us in his image physical beauty is a good thing but we as a society and as church and as individuals can become excessively attached to that becomes an idol and money we've already talked about portfolios retirement packages above everything not a concern or sacrifice for others so all this to say we are going to live the Christian life, if we are going to attain real happiness, real joy, biblical joy, we have to figure out idolatry. So let me go back to kind of where I started here in my own idol, idolatry of, of that comes out as my idol of self that comes out as anger, that comes out as, as yelling sometimes. Um, I, I want to ask you this question and ask myself this question. Who is helping you to see the idols in your life. Who is helping you? Small groups are really important, but I want to suggest that there are really a, a platform where relationships develop, and then there's going to be within our small groups one or two or three really close friendships where you're going to be able to talk about your idolatrous tendencies. The reality is some of our idolatrous tendencies, it's not appropriate to talk about them in our small group. And some of them we can. The one I've just talked about, we could talk about that. But some of them, we we can't really talk about them in our small group. And we need a really close brother or sister in the Lord to be alongside us so that we can talk and say, let me tell you what's going on in my life in my mind or in my actions and so i am praying increasingly that you are going to immediately names are going to come to mind if they didn't already for you i know for some of you they did and i'm praying that they will for all of us increasingly as we move forward there's people who know me so well they know what my idolatrous tendencies are all of this how to live the christian life how to attain happiness so if we're going to figure out idolatry, Uh, a second thing, before we come back to chapter 10, a second thing, we have to believe the gospel. We have to live repentantly. When we figure out idolatry, this side of ourselves being glorified, this side of the eternal state, we're never going to master idolatry. We're going to be in a fight until the end. We're going to be progressively growing in Christ, but we're never going to arrive. There's this already not yet tension in the Christian life. And so we must believe the gospel. We must be living repentantly. 
if we are going to attain happiness, if we are going to live out the Christian life. Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How do we get pure in heart? I don't feel like my heart's pure. The only way that we get pure hearts is by, by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And where we're headed, the end of this passage, for the glory of God alone. Blessed are those who by grace have believed in Jesus and are pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are they. Happy are they. We could translate that. D.A. Carson uh, writes this. uh, Usually, that looks nice. Uh, Makurios is uh, the Greek word there. Usually, makarios describes the Greek word for blessed or happy. Usually, makarios describes the man who is singularly favored by God. The man or woman who is singularly favored by God and therefore, in some sense, happy doesn't mean that we're smiling all the time. doesn't mean that we never struggle with discouragement or depression or, or feeling alone. But we have a kind of durable joy and happiness in the Christian life. This comes from figuring out idolatry. It comes from believing the gospel and from loving Jesus. Let's move on here back to our text. Uh, I'm at verse 23. The Corinthians have this slogan at the beginning of verse 23, everything is lawful, or the NIV has everything is permissible. They they have this truth that in Christ we're free from the law, that this is a truth, but they've misapplied it and they've misunderstood it. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive, Paul's saying to them. Nobody should seek his own good. Verse 24. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Verse 24 is huge in this section. How do we live the Christian life? How do we attain happiness? We figure out idolatry. And then secondly, uh, or I'm on three now, sorry. We figure out idolatry. We believe the gospel. And number three, we seek the good of others. It's the second thing in this passage, third thing in this sermon, seeking the good of others. Uh, This isn't in that documentary if you watch it on on Happy, really, maybe a little bit. But not from a gospel perspective. That happiness comes about under the lordship of Jesus, not as you seek your own good Corinthians, not as you seek your own good cornerstone people, but as you seek the good of others. This is not, this is countercultural. How do we attain happiness? By seeking the good of under, others under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, under the gospel. Now, I've, I've talked about my father-in-law before. I'm, I'm uh, probably going to talk about him again, I hope. Are you, are you tired of me talking about my father-in-law? Um, you know, my father-in-law was married... Uh, for, I think, 56 years. We've, we have had the opportunity to see a lot of marriages over the years, and uh, their marriage is at the top of just living out the gospel and loving each other. 
talk about them all the time. His wife, my mother-in-law, went to be with the Lord about four years ago. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen? This life that has been so beautiful. Eight children, 7,000 grandchildren, <laughs> great-grandchildren, more in the oven, more coming. What's, what's, this, what's his life going to look like with her gone? It's going to be depression and, and grief and, and misery, and I've got to sell the house. It reminds me of her. I can't even walk down this corridor. Hasn't been that way for him. In part, because he has stepped up his service of others. He misses his wife. He's grieving her. But, but this guy is just on a mission of making disciples, his Bible study, of increasing his generosity. He probably wouldn't want me talking about this, but I've got to talk about something, right? And there's nothing really better to talk about than someone living out the gospel. So he has, has stepped up his generosity, his financial giving in a new way that he wasn't doing before when his wife was around. Giving money to advance the gospel in, in a strategic way, spending his time on that. Massive joy and happiness in the wake of the love of his life being gone, who he's been with for 56 years. So happiness uh, isn't smiling all the time. It's something that's durable. It's a fruit of living out the gospel, figuring out idolatry, believing the gospel, living it out, seeking the good of others. Verse 24 is huge. Let's come back to the text here. Verse 25, he comes back to this issue of of, uh, Tri-Tip and Zeus. Verse 25, eat anything sold in the market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24.1. He's quoting there. So what happened, and we've hit this before, so I want to spend a lot of time on this, but what happened is is there's so many of these festivals going on, worship of Zeus, that there's lots of leftover tri-tip, that leftover tri-tip makes its way to Rayleigh's. So Paul's saying, when you go to Rayleigh's and buy tri-tip, you know it was sacrificed to Zeus, not a big deal. Buy the tri-tip, eat the tri-tip, rejoice, uh, enjoy enjoy that uh, food. Uh, in, in, in your home. Verse 27. But if some unbeliever, what, what about if some unbeliever invites you to a meal, you want to go, and they've got tri-tip sacrifice to Zeus, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Just, just go in, love them, eat that. Verse 28. But if anyone says to you, so someone's invited you to your home, and uh, they've got tri- uh, tri-tip sacrifice to Zeus, but now they say, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. See, the emphasis here is on the other person's heart and life. It's not about like connecting the dots. Is this exactly an acceptable food or not? It's about loving your neighbor, the other man's conscience. And he, he continues on through this, through verse 30. There's some difficult things here, but I think you're getting the essence of what he's saying. Seek the good of others. Eat the meat. If someone says to you, well, you know, the, you know, uh, just want to let you know, Christian, I'm a I'm non-believer, I invite you, Christian, to my house. I just want to let you know this was sacrificed to Zeus. So this person, it's like a setup. Well, is he going to join us in this 
Zeusishness? Or is he going to remain part of those folks that, that celebrate this other thing, this Lord's Supper? So in that case, you, you don't eat it because this person is thinking. And you want the gospel to go their way. You want them to know that you are not devoted to Zeus. So in that case, don't eat it. Don't eat the meal in that situation. Okay, finally, we come to uh, the two most important things in this section, first, in this section of 1 Corinthians 10. The first one is this horizontal perspective in verse 24. No one should seek his own good but the good of others. And then the second and the biggest, and this is huge, is, is verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, the Holy Spirit anticipating this work of God being at work for 2,000 years. So whether you eat or drink, not just in the context of meat sacrificed to idols, but this is broad now. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is what the Christian lives for. Our mission is to make disciples, but our overarching purpose, our overarching aim, our ultimate aim is to bring God glory. Our ultimate aim is doxa, the Greek word for glory. We are ultimately doxological people. If we are going to attain happiness, if we are going to live the Christian life, we are going to live for the glory of God alone. Our tendency is to live for the glory of myself or the glory of my spouse or the glory of my children. Watching them play sports. My tendency is to live for their glory or my glory if I'm playing him in a sport. Sports aren't wrong. The Christian has to figure out how to play a sport for the glory of God. And if we can't, then we ought not to play the sport. Glory is one of these terms that's it's kind of hard to define. You kind of know what it means, but it's hard to define. It's, it's the radiance, the weight, the beauty of God, the glory of God. This is what we live for. Let me give you a, a concrete example of this. Uh, we're, we're, we're getting, are you guys tracking with me today? You guys, you guys with me? So here's a concrete example of what a doxological life looks like. A life that is for the glory of God alone. The difference between that and a good life or a secular life. I'm going to use a concrete example here of counseling. All right. So imagine this. A Christian couple that argues and fights. A married couple that yells at each other. Or one of them leaves. There's no yelling. They take off. They get in the car and they're gone. Can you imagine that? Can anybody imagine that? I can imagine that. We can imagine this, right? So this couple, this Christian couple knows they need some help. And so they go to a counselor. They go to a good counselor. And this counselor tells them good things. And this counselor helps them to learn how to fight well, how to communicate, how to resolve issues. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. But it is not doxological. 
So, what that couple needs is not only that, but they need to learn how their marriage is designed to display the glory of Jesus Christ. They need to learn how to communicate. But it doesn't end there. It ends whether you're eating or drinking or working through something in your home. It ends with a life committed to the glory of God. So a biblical counselor will be a doxological counselor. It will not be a counselor who is just trying to make peace. That's good. But it is insufficient for the Christian life and for happiness. Our lives are for the glory of God. Everything in the life of a Christian is doxological for his glory. God is glorified when he sees himself in the character of the believer. He is glorified when he sees himself in the married couple who has been fighting. When he sees them forgiving one another because Christ forgave them. When he sees one spouse loving the other who doesn't deserve it at all, but because Christ died for me and loved me, I'm going to show love and grace to that spouse. God gets glory when he sees himself in the character of the believer. Let the promotion of his glory be your object in all you do. Strive in everything to act in such a way that men and women and boys and girls may praise that God whom you profess to serve. It is by thus having the desire to promote the glory of God as the governing motive of our lives. This is huge. That order and harmony are introduced into all our actions. The sun is then the center of the system. Men of the world have themselves for the end of their actions. Philosophers tell us to make the good of others the end. That's a little tricky sentence there, right? The, the key words are the end. We just talked about how it's important to serve others, but that's not the end. The glory of God is the end. And thus destroy the sentiment of religion, meaning Christianity or the gospel, by merging it into philanthropy or benevolence. The Bible tells us to make the glory of God the end. I want to close with uh, some words from a man who's very important in my life. You've already heard from him today. I found this little book uh, written by him. I never knew he wrote it till this week. I'm thankful to be a, a full-time pastor so I can take the time to read something and, and, and something about God and, and, and give it to you. And, and this, this man is one of my professors, but those of you who have been educators, you know education is a tremendous place to do discipleship, so he's really more of a pastor or a discipler of me. His name's John Hanna. He's uh, the department chairman of historical theology. He's a guy who taught me to learn a lot from, from dead people, uh, from, from reading uh, and getting to know dead people. People like Augustine, whom he pronounces Augustine. But in this little book that uh, Dr. Hannah wrote, he says this about his own life. I'll leave you with this. He says, uh, when I rise in the morning, 
and bow my heart and mind before God, I generally begin to form my thoughts around one question. I ask, will you grant me the privilege of glorifying you today? I do not begin by discussing the tasks and duties that may fill a particular day because the purpose for living is not duties. Duties, conversations, and deadlines are vehicles by which I am able to display the character of God. However, this is not the end for which God ordains the gift of every new day. God ultimately desires that he would see himself in me each day. Then at the end of the day, when I often in weariness fall into bed, I reserve enough energy to ask another question. Have you, O God, seen yourself in what I said, thought, and did today? Did I care for others the way you would have? Through these questions, I find the answers to the greatest of all life's questions. Did I fulfill my destiny today? Did I glorify God? Did God see his character in my attitudes and actions? Let's pray together. Lord, we we need you so desperately to live this way. So that as we fall into bed at night and we ask ourselves if we displayed your glory in whatever came our way that day, that we would be able to worship you and say thank you. Thank you for using me. Lord, we need others to help us figure out idolatry, to get the things that are less important that we've made really important in right proportion, in the right place in our lives. Lord, we all have this desire for happiness. We know that we can't aim for happiness uh, to get it. But we aim for you. And by your grace, you've allowed us to be joyful and happy when we're displaying your glory, even when we're going through a season of grief, even when life is hard. So Lord, I pray that you would make us people who live for the glory of God alone. We pray that our neighbors, that our coworkers, that our classmates would see us, that they would come to know you, that they would fill the seats in this place, that many people in Auburn would fill the seats in Auburn Grace, Crossroads, all of the other gospel preaching Bible-believing churches, Lord. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.